Hi, it's Thursday. I'm a little behind schedule, um, but for a number of reasons, it's interesting. Well, some are not so interesting. I said yesterday was shot because I had a funeral I had to go to and speak at. Good friend of mine, Mr. Norman Freeman here, father of uh, Morris Freeman I, and Ira and, and Kenny here in Baltimore, uh, passed away in the end of the bio. And they had a dinner here, so anyway, the, you know, yesterday was just not done. I had to write up a, a has but I never write up any speeches. Um, I never write up any speeches, with the exception of Shabbos Agadol and Shabbos Shuba, and then, uh, and then the eulogies and Hespits. Because I don't want to do right. Um, so I couldn't do that. Plus, to tell you the truth, um, beginning of the week... I asked Ari Belma, I said, okay, who's the art site is it today? You know, who's, who's somebody to play with? And he sent me a bunch of names, and as he always does. And I'll tell you the truth, I'm tired of doing famous rabbis from Poland, Eastern Europe in the 15th, 16th, 1700s, like over and over again. I mean, it's a, a little odid on that, even though everyone's biography is interesting in its way, but I'm a human being and I'm looking for something a little different. And so, it, although he said, uh, 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 gave me a list of a bunch of names of famous rabbinim, usual suspects, but I couldn't get into it, you know, just psychologically. And uh, But then you mentioned one name, and I immediately fastened on it, even though I'm a little hesitant about it. And that'll at least change our uh, focus, or take away from Poland and Ashkenaz and all that, which you like OD'd on, and take it to a different climate, a different place, Italy, northern Italy. I've touched on it once upon a time, rarely. Italian Jewry in the 1700s, particularly late 1600s, 1700s. And uh, a certain person, very controversial kind of, uh, who led a life that I don't know if I could cover in two hours and three hours. Uh, it's really quite, it's like a movie. And it's a big McCubble. And, uh, but on the other hand, the circumstances of their life really are like that you find in a novel or a movie, including elements of uh, grandeur and tragedy. And so I said, you know, I'll just go into this, even though I'm no McCubble or anything like that. But I'm talking about Emmanuel Chayriki. It probably means nothing to 95% of you. He's actually a very famous person. Uh, but before I do that, so I mean, I tell you, I'm not a Kabbalist, so I'm a little bit hesitant. On the other hand, I know something about it. And, and besides that, even the non Kabbalistic stuff is very fascinating, as I'll try to argue in a minute. So uh, before I do, I just want to mention that uh, I should have done it last week, but I mentioned when I was in Boca. Uh, I met a number of people, became friends with him. One is Rabbi Kasorla, very nice. And uh, he very generously sponsored, uh, sent the country to sponsor uh, today's lecture, whether they realize it or not. And uh, this will be Morris Kapatika, another Sephardi. And um, so I thank him. And I also make a shout out tonight or tomorrow. I'll do hopefully do the Parsha of the Week and uh, the Pollocks in. In Columbus, friends of mine who come to Baltimore sometimes in my show, send a, a very generous donation, and uh, I'll be sponsoring tomorrow. Uh, they're going to be sponsoring the this year that we'll be doing tomorrow the podcast. So it's Rabbi Kasula today in the Pollux tomorrow. I just, my son called me from Israel a few minutes ago, just Stamazoy, and he's in um, in base Israel, you know, in the Vayako, and he to, one of the reasons he told me was for this, that, and the other, you know. So it's a birthday, but then, but uh, he said that uh, the, all the boys in OJ, you know, his friends are all listening to this podcast. 
which is kind of funny to me. And so I should give a shout out to all the boys in OJ uh, over in Israel. And uh, anyway, grateful for all the sponsors. I hope more people will continue to sponsor. Obviously, that enables me to continue this, even though it's always a matter of scratching out time. I have a lecture to write up for monthly Shabbos, as they do every week. And then without any further ado, we'll sink our teeth into the person for this week, although it's a quite a story. Here we go to Italy in a um, very different place. In the old days, when Italian Jewry was something, it was always very small in number. And I've mentioned before, I remember I did Azaria Figo, for example, Lampronti. In Italy, uh, the Jewish history is uh, very fascinating for a whole bunch of reasons that I'll try to in- in- indicate in a minute, particularly in, so- in terms of quantity. The, uh, the, the dissonance or the difference between quantity and quality is very marked in early modern Italian Jewry, at least in my mind which is all you ever get. Uh, now, most of you, I'm sure, the place I'm going to mention today, nobody has the an idea where most of these places are located. So if you really want to follow, get a map, <laughs> go online and get a good map of Italy. Um, because prior to 1860, there was no country called Italy. It was just that peninsula, you know, uh, with the boot. And historically, for many, many centuries, uh, Italy was divided into like three zones, A, B, and C, going from south-north. The south of Italy, where the boot is, used to be called the Kingdom of Naples, the capital city being Naples, Napoli. And uh, this was uh, about a third of Italy, and it was a separate kingdom, a, a totally separate country, until like 1860 or so. Um, the middle of Italy, going north, like a belt running across the Italian peninsula from left to right, used to be called the Papal States. It was ruled by the Pope. Again, for many, many centuries. By that I mean that the Pope, in the old days, had two roles, not one. Today only has one. The Pope was a religious figure, the head of the Catholic Church. Yes, that's true. But in the old days, the Pope, in addition to that, was the king of a country. He was the ruler of a country. That country was called the States of the Pope, Papal States. And now it's that territory right across the middle of Italy. And they had wars and just like any other country. I know it sounds funny, but that's, that's how it went. And uh, that's the middle. And then, so, the first one, the Kingdom of Naples, is one big Medina. And the Papal State is one big Medina. And then north of that is the final zone C, is a whole bunch of countries. There used to be different Italian separate states. Uh, a whole bunch of countries. They're like four biggies and a bunch of smallies. The four biggies, I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but you'll see why in a minute. The four biggies, meaning relatively larger countries, one was called uh, Tuscany, where uh, Livorno, we'll talk about, and and Florence is located, if you've ever been there. I've been there. Another one was called uh, Milan. That's the whole Lombardy, northern part. Then the next to that is a country called Venice, not a city, a country called Venice. And on the other side of all that is a place called King of Piedmont. And then besides it, a bunch of small little countries. So if you lived in northern Italy, where most of the Jews lived at that time, it's crazy. Every 10 feet is no little country. You know, it could be. And that's the life that we're going to be looking at uh, today. And in each one of these places were very small Jewish communities. But small doesn't necessarily mean anything, as I'll try to show you. Jews, for Jewish history, forget about the South. The Kingdom of Naples was zero Jews. And the reason is because... 
The kingdom of Naples was conquered and annexed by Spain in the time of Ferdinand and Isabella, the ones who kicked the Jews out of Spain. And so they just extended that rule to Naples, so no Jew was allowed to be in Naples. There was no Jewish history there. In the middle of the papal states, there is Jewish history. The Pope sometimes persecuted the Jews fairly often, but there were Jewish communities, including Rabbanim, and once in a while, uh, yeshivas, even though it was, never, it was never easy. But it could be. And uh, the papal state runs like from the left all the way up to the right. It's like a belt uh, twisted. And then north of that, in those little small kingdoms, that's where you, uh, the, the Duchy of Milan, the Republic of Venice, the Duchy of Tuscany, you know, these places. Here you had tiny little dots, Jewish Kahila, 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 sometimes very small. But on the other hand, it's, a, it's amazing. They cultivated learning. And so you could have in Italy a town of, let's say, 30 Jewish families. And, you know, they're all, or a fair number of them are Tamil Chacham, they're very learned. And you ask the guy, where did you learn? Did you go to Panovich? Did you go here? Did you go there? Yeah, he learned locally. Because, um, think about what I'm about to tell you. Suppose a guy's living in America. I'm just making this up. And suppose there's a mini Kolel, I don't know, in some stupid little place out of nowhere as well. Not in a real community like Chicago or Philadelphia or St. Louis. Suppose there's a small town, let's say there was a Gavir. This could happen. Say it was a rich guy in America, and he said... You know, I'm from, but I live away from everybody else. So I'm going to bankroll a little coal mini coal to be in my town, my small shoal. Listen, guys need money. They would do it. They would go out there. So let's say there was a boy who goes to public school in that little town. I'm writing a novel here, aren't I? And he gets hooks up with these uh, coal guys. So he could go all of his life just in that little town if he really was serious and putting in a couple hours every day, every day, every day. You'd be amazed. You'd meet the kids. Say, where are you from? Uh, you know, Nowheresville, uh, Illinois. Uh, and you know Shas. Well, how'd you do that? Did you go to Yeshiva? No. Did you go to, to day school? No. Did you go to high school? No. If you want to, it could happen, right? Because at the end of the day, learning is not necessarily about being in a large Yeshiva or even a small one. Learning is about having covers and covering ground. So that's the interesting world we're talking about. Now, the person I'm speaking about was Italian. I think Spartak by background, I believe. And his name was Immanuel Chai Ricci, 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 which is an Italian uh, word, but it's probably Spanish background. And he lived from 1685, 1687 to 1743. So that means mainly in the early 1700s. And he will have a, a remarkable career in two places, Italy and Israel. There's Israel. And then Italy, and then it's Israel again. Uh, See, so Malachi Ricky is born in Ferrara. So, again, I'm talking about... I've been in Ferrara. It's an unbelievably pretty city. There always was a Jewish community there. Um, they're under the Pope. So they don't have it so easily. But believe it or not, there was a very Chashev Yeshiva there. That's where the Pachet Yitzhak, Rabbi Lampranti, uh, wrote his encyclopedia and had a Yeshiva. These small Jewish communities, which had ghettos and walls in the ghettos, inside the ghettos sometimes, sometimes was unbelievably high-quality learning and light, Jewish life went on. You know, there's two. There's a plus and a minus to the ghetto. The, pl- the minus is, you know, the, the, you can't see what's going on the outside. The plus is you can't see what's going on the outside, and you can develop a whole Jewish life on the inside. So he's born over here. Um, I'll say it again, Ferrara is a very pretty city, but it was a big Malcolm Torah, even though the Jewish community wasn't that big. Uh, his father dies when he's young. There's sometimes these stories. And his mother takes him to a nearby town, Rovigo, which I passed by. Now, I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but 
Railroad goes to a small community, not too far away, from, not too far away from Padua and 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 Venice. Uh, that means he moved. I told you before, they're all little tiny countries. So when he's six years old, he moves from country A to country B. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, you know, imagine that Rhode Island is one country and, and a totally separate country is, is Connecticut, another country is Massachusetts, another country is New Jersey, totally separate units. But the states in America are big. Suppose they were all the size of Rhode Island. That's what you're dealing with. Rovigo is a community in northern Italy, which had, I think, 17 or 18 Jewish families. Uh, they had, believe it or not, a Kehillah. They had some distinguished Tamina Chachamah living over there. And Rovigo happens to be a place where you had one of the most famous fights in modern Jewish history in terms of halachic machlokas. It's called the controversy around the mikvah of Rovigo. Now, most people don't think about mikvahs, but, and I'm not going to go give a disquisition now, but just to give you the briefest account, it was two brothers, and uh, then one brother moved away, and they, he organized, a, in a town of 17 families, how are you going to afford a mikvah? You know, I was just in Baltimore last night, we had a big um, dinner a communal dinner with six, seven hundred people to celebrate the Baltimore Mikvah, which is a big and fancy operation. As it ought to be, we have a large uh, from community here. Imagine the whole community with 17 families. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. And there was like three brothers, I remember. Whole books, whole swarm were written about this. And they had a Mikvah, but the Mikvah had to be supplied by water, and rainwater didn't do the trick, apparently. And the long and the short of it is, one brother, he or, arranged a, a situation where he could pick it up and put it in a bucket and pour it from the bucket into the mikvah, provided the bucket has a whole bunch of holes. Then it doesn't have a den of a kli, and then it's not mayim shuvin. If you don't know what that means, then don't worry about it. And uh, he left town, and his brother continued to operate the mikvah that way, and when the first brother returned, he got all angry, and he said that the second brother isn't doing it right, and his old problem with the holes and uh, it's the mikvah is therefore not good, and the first brother says it is good, and of course, obviously, women had already used it, and all hell broke loose, baby. All throughout northern Italy, um, all the Rabbanim of that era got involved, coming out arguing that the mikvah is really kosher, versus those who said the mikvah is really treif. And whole swarm, I'm serious, were written on this, Shalos and Shubas went back and forth, it's called uh, the Pulmus and the Mikvah of Robigo. And uh, I actually have a, just came out not long ago, uh, you know, the Zichron Aaron, that they publish a lot of these early modern Shalos and Shubas, which I like. And they had one with the Maran Padua and something, and something called Kuntras, uh Mikvah Barovigo or something like that. So uh, the only reason I'm telling you is a town that can have that kind of machlokas with 17 people is either the most cantankerous place in the world, which is quite possible. Remember, it was relatives fighting. But it also shows you tiny little towns can have serious Talmud Chachamim. Uh, I wish in, 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 in uh, you know, I don't know, where in Maryland, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Pocomoke, they had a fight about uh, the, the, the make fun people arguing back and forth with Swarm. So that's where this young guy uh, ends up learning from the age of 6 to uh, 19. The age of 19. So you ask somebody who became a famous Talmud, because he became a famous Talmud later. So where'd you learn? So I'm telling you, he said, I guess, I learned in Evanston, Illinois, you know, in, in Fargo, uh, you know, North Dakota or something like that. In Rovigo, a, a tiny little town. But it doesn't matter if you're 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and so forth years old, and you have a guy or two in town to learn with, and you learn every day. Guess what? You come out knowing something. You don't have to have Lakewood. 
And so here's somebody who's 19, and he's a Mamasha Thomas Kocham. And uh, I'll tell you something else. Just speaking historically over here, that was a good move that his family moved from the original town of Ferrara over to Rovigo. And the reason I say it is because he crossed from, even though they're not far away, they're about 20, 30 miles away from each other, but one was in country A and the other was in country B. So what's the difference? We're dealing here with the 1690s and the first decade of the 1700s. That's when, that's when he grew up. So that doesn't mean anything to you, but it means something to the historian. There were major wars raging in Europe at that time. They're called the Louis XIV Wars, where King Louis XIV of France was trying to expand and conquer a big chalic of Europe, and there formed against them counter-alliances. And in Italy, for example, there were constant wars and campaigns back and forth with armies moving here and armies moving there between the French armies of Louis XIV on the one hand and the Austrian armies uh, fighting him on the other hand because the Emperor of Austria was nearby and, and he owned part of that territory. Uh, and the Spanish got into it. And so basically the reason I'm saying this is because if you're Jewish, you either had Mosul or you didn't. If you had Mosul, you did not live in the path of an invading army. Uh, if you had no Mosul, you did live in the path of an invading army. And when armies come through, they burn and pillage and kill and rape, and then they ask questions. And if you're a Jewish community, and these are all Gaish armies, they ain't going to take care of the Jews over here. They're going to kill them or, or, or sack them or do something terrible to them. And consequently, life was very difficult. There's one place that it was safe to be, and that was the Republic of Venice, the territory of Venice that I just mentioned as one of the Medinas in northern Italy. Uh, because Venice was very clever for its diplomacy, and without giving you a whole disposition, suffice it to say that Venice arranged matters that their territory was never invaded by foreign armies. So if you lived over, uh, you know, in, in, in Ravigo, in Venetian territory, you had peace and quiet, which is the most important thing for Jews. You had law and order and peace and quiet. It's in the Republic of Venice. You know, this, the country was anti-Semitic. The state, per, you know, had uh, discrimination against the Jews, but there's no wars. You know, and there is law and order. There is law and order. And so uh, the boy has a good upbringing in that regard. If he would have stayed back in Ferrara, that was part of the Papal States, and there the armies are going back and forth, and, you know, all kind of bad things happen. So look how much depends on having the right model, living the right time at the right place, as opposed to living the wrong time in the wrong place. Uh, this is why Jews always like to live in the Republic of Venice when they're able to. Well, now you're 19 years old, you're not married, you're a Talmud Chacham, so what do you do? I'm serious. What do you do? In the old-fashioned days, long ago, somebody who didn't have a job and didn't have a wife uh, or a position at that time, and he was a Talmud Chacham, and the type I'm, turning, I'm talking about, 19, 20, 20 years old, you became a tutor. You know, you, if, you notice, if you don't know how to do anything else, you go in the Chinuch. Uh, has much changed over the centuries? We won't go into that. But uh, in the old days, if you, didn't have, if you didn't have anything else to do when you and you, uh, you know, remember, the guy never was in yeshiva in the first place, in a formal yeshiva. So if you have, uh, you know, nothing to do, and there we go, so you end up uh, going to the Chinuch. Where do you go in the Chinuch? Nearby, he found a community, Goritzia. Again, this name doesn't mean anything to you, but it's country to the west, a little uh, a community in, in Italy, just beyond the border of the Republic of Venice, it's the area of, of, of Italy controlled by Austria. So, Radicats, why are you telling me all this kind of stuff? It makes a difference. What can I tell you? Every community was different. 
Now listen closely. He becomes a malamed, you'd say, you know, a, a, a chanich, in whatever they had for a school in that town of Gorizia, which was an Ashkenazi community. So here's the interesting part. Italy, especially the part I'm talking about, northern Italy, uh, was always composed of three types of Jews, A, B, and C. Is uh, Italiani, Ashkenaz, and Sephardi. Now, and Sephardi actually was two types, but Italiani, Ashkenaz, and Sephardi. That Italiani means you're descended from Jews who have always left Italy, lived in Italy, and never left Italy, I mean. Mainly from Rome. There aren't too many of those. They were always a small minority within Italian Jewry. Secondly, you have Ashkenazic Jewry. These were Jews whose parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents, whatever, way, way back when, moved to northern Italy when they were kicked out of Germany in one persecution other in the Middle Ages. Most of the Jewish communities in northern Italy are there for Ashkenaz. It's just interesting. And then you have Sephardic communities. Obviously, they came after 1492. So Gorizia had me a place where it's Ashkenazic Kehla. Uh, that's what they got there. Who cares? I'm going to tell you. Our hero, Immanuel Chayriki, so he, Ricci, so uh, he becomes a Malamba there. You see from early on that he had Natias to Kabbalah. Now, it didn't express itself beforehand, and he was learning Gemara, Rashi Tosis, and, you know, the regular Nigla stuff, the regular Nigla stuff, back in whatever, in Rovigo, you know, with his two or three Chavrusas. Uh, but somehow or other, uh, he must have also picked up a taste for Kabbalah. Italy was a very interesting place in this regard because there's a distinct line of the Kabbalistic tradition that I'll talk about in a minute that goes from uh, the Rizal, basically, to, uh, to Italy. It's uh, quite remarkable. Now, our hero, right? Our hero, uh, when he comes to this town, so soon it's Cholomoyed. Uh, they're Ashkenazim. If you're Ashkenaz, I'm asking you a question. Do you put on Tefillin and Cholomoyed? I do. I'm Ashkenaz. I put on Tefillin and Cholomoyed. That's what my father did. I don't say a bracha. Uh, the Yaki say a bracha. But that's the old custom. The Sephardim don't, but the Ashkenaz do. What is the reason the Sephardim don't? Well, there's two basic lines of thought. One is, if you follow through the Sugi and the Gemara, there are Rishonim on both sides of the issue. And basically, you're arguing, is Chol a Moed uh, a Chol with a little bit of Moed? Or is it a Moed with a little bit of Chol? If it's Chol with a little bit of Moed, then you put on Tefillin because it's basically a Chol. Uh, on the other hand, if you say Chol is basically a Moed with a little bit of Chol, then since it's characteristics of a yantav of a moed, you do not put on shalom. That's the nigla way of approaching it. And some Rishonim held this way, and some Rishonim held that way. But in the Zohar, there's a whole part in Shirashim in which it says, in the Zohar, there's a whole part in Shirashim in which it says that uh, the Cholomoyed is the tefillin de Marialma. That Cholomoyed is God's tefillin, and God is very offended if you put on tefillin. It's like putting on tefillin on Shabbat or something like that. You understand? It's like you're dissing God's tefillin. Uh, in which case, it's not a chumrah to put in tefillin, it's an avera. Uh, now, this Imanul Chayriki, who is 19, 20 years old, is a new mechanech in, uh, in, the, in the local school of a community which probably had, I would imagine, 100 families total, if that. So, uh, they're small communities. So he raises hell and shul, he t- goes around and tells everybody, you're not allowed to put on tefillin. Uh, and he banged the table and did all kind of stuff like that. You know, if you've been in shoals, 
uh, sometimes there's somebody who makes a fight. And he's a new guy, and he's an employee. And who the heck is he? And he's 19 years old, he's 20 years old. And they're Ashkenaz. And so immediately, you know, he screamed, and this and that and the other, knocked over tables, and uh, all hell broke loose, and they stopped the dominating, and some people have shul, and he makes a whole big stink out of it, and the local rabbi is very offended, where Ashkenaz, our minig is to put on tefillin, and so on and so forth, and he's saying, no, it's an Avera, whoever puts on tefillin, the children will die, he will die, all this kind of stuff. So you see, at this young age, he's a Kabbalistic enthusiast, shall we say. Ad he doesn't mind going against local custom. Well, this provoked a little spat, and uh, the Kehillah wrote letters, Silas. That's what you're supposed to do. You ask a godal. You know, they wrote Silas to the rabbis in northern in, in Italy. Uh, this became a cause celebro, particularly in Italy, and I'll tell you why. Because in Italy, you had small communities that I just described. Usually, they weren't like I just said before, everybody's Ashkenaz. A lot of these Kehillahs were composed of catch as catch can. A couple of families are Ashkenaz, a couple of Sephard. So, my point is, if you live in an area with all Ashkenaz, everybody wears tefillin, there's no question. If you wear no Sephard, nobody wears tefillin, there's no question. If you live in a community where part of the shul is this and part of the shul is that, could be a question. That's why it could be a fight. This is why they say in the post game, I'm sure you know, that in the shul it should be Losis go to do. That, you know, shouldn't be either the, the people in that shul should all wear tefillin or they shouldn't. Now, this is broken down in America. Uh, and the reason because we have so many different people from different places, and nobody cares anymore, meaning nobody's making a fight now. Even in my show, my show is officially a new subscribe, so the regular people don't wear the phone. But I'm a Litvak by background, so I do, and it's no, it's no big deal. Uh, if you want to be technical about it, if you have loads of scudder, but no, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a large minion. People are glad that anybody comes. And the one who wants to wears it, and one who doesn't want to doesn't wear I've even had people that change their minion, you know, one way or the other over the course of years. So, it's, I don't think in America it's a big deal. Big shmeal. But, uh, over there it was. In Europe it was. And, uh, he really shook the tree over there. Let me put it this way. And the result was that, uh, a, a very fascinating, uh, uh, set of literary texts emerges out of this because, um, they wrote a Shiloh, uh, particularly to, um, to a very famous guy at that time, uh, the rabbi in Ancona, who was uh, Shimshon Morpurgo, uh, which shows you Morpurgo is like the most prominent family in Goritzi, in the place where they had to fight. And Shimshon Morpurgo was a classic early modern Italian rabbi who wrote a very famous sefer of Shalos and Chubas called uh, Shemesh uh, Marpe. Um, I think Shemesh Tzedakah, is it? Shemesh Marpe. I forget. One of those names. Uh, and I remember I didn't never heard him before. And that book, unfortunately, has only been published uh, once. It's a very, very interesting uh, sefer of an uh, Italian rabbi who was in the community in Ancona. And he, um, what shall I say? Um, he uh, was, there's a town called Ancona, which is the port city on the Adriatic facing the eastern part of uh, the Balkans. And used to be Murano's lived there, and the Pope burned them at the stake. But a later Pope was a little more chilled, and in the 1700s, Ashkenazi Jews moved there, and this guy became the rabbi over there. Uh, Shimshon uh, Morpurgo was, uh, what shall I tell you, uh, 
a typical Italian uh, Rav from uh, that era, in which case he went to college also. That's my point. He went to college. And uh, it's very, very fascinating because uh, he was an MD as well as a, as a, as a Paisic. And uh, he was, I remember he got a medal from the Pope because he helped during the uh, coronavirus epidemic, whatever they had at that time in Ancona in 1730. But he was a regular, like you'd say today, a nigla type of posik. And he has a long teshuva attacking this guy. What are you making trouble in the community for? And here are all the sources and makaris of Gedoli Ashkenaz that always say you put on tefillin and they were bigger people than you and they knew Kabbalah also. And Alpha became the Minning Ashkenaz, the Minning Ashkenaz, and so on and so forth. It's very learned. Uh, I don't have, nobody has this safer. Years ago, if I would have had a more, um, what shall I say, larceny type uh, personality in the old TA in uh, Rabbi Sampson's office, long after he was gone, they used to have a, a, a volume of this. I can't believe they had it. Must have been some old rabbi in Baltimore died and, you know, whatever, and kept it for long ago. Shamus, Charles and Jewish. Shemesh Tzedakah. And uh, uh, it was in perfect shape. I should have stolen it. Because it's gone now, somebody else stole it. Uh, it's, it's, it's worth a lot of money, I'm sure. Uh, and nobody's ever reprinted it. And he was, I wouldn't call him a left-wing postic, but he certainly was a liberal postic, but 150% within the Dalai of Alokha. And uh, he wrote a whole thing attacking the guy and um, defending the Ashkenaz Pesach. And I didn't see it there, so how do I know about it? Well, it's, it's quoted, but you know who inclu- included all this? In the Italian Jewish Encyclopedia of the 1700s, the Hala Encyclopedia Talmudit, that emerged in Italy in the 1700s from Rabbi Yitzhak Lampronti, the Pachat Yitzhak, who I think I did a podcast on it probably a year ago, uh, which is a fascinating little um, Encyclopedia Talmudit of like 10, 12 volumes. Uh, every once in a while, the author who was the rabbi in Ferrara, where our hero came from, and was a big gone, and also an MD, by the way. He, direct, he directed a hospital, in, in addition to being a Rosh Hashiva, and a basin. So again, he wore three hats. He was the, the Dorov, as we say today, ran the basin, and he was a Rosh Hashiva, a very Hashiva Rosh Hashiva, Posek, and he was a director of a hospital, a medical institute, and he wrote Encyclopedia Talmudit. So you can imagine what kind of people you're dealing with, he has a whole section on filling a Cholomoy, if you look it up right there, and they're tough. And he's got his sock and all these other Italian rabbis, most of whom never, nobody's ever heard of. And all I can say is that our hero today, Emmanuel uh, Chayriki, really uh, raised the roof in that community. And, uh, you know, he went back down, and they went back down. So, as we would say today, it's not a good shidduch. You know what I'm saying? It's not a good shidduch. Now, remember that, because later in his life, this film thing, at least in my opinion, is going to come back to haunt him in a gruesome, in a gruesome way. Uh, because what you're really doing over here is raising the following question. What's more important, a certain Kabbalistic practice or communal harmony? Uh, the Rabbanim and the Nigla, the, the Shalas and Tubas are always standing that the most important, uh, I repeat, in the hierarchy of values, the most important value is Shalom. Uh, shalom Bais, Shalom in the, in the Kehila, and so forth. Uh, it's very hard to have shalom. And, you know, a lot of people got to give in and, you know, compromise and things like that. But especially in the old days, uh, a, a Jewish community that didn't have shalom is going to fall apart 
and they'll all die out or all into, uh, assimilate or, or uh, become Goyim. And in Italy, that's Kalvachomer because the communities are small. So nothing is as important as maintaining the, the, the harmony in the, in the community. This is the base of a famous note of Yehuda, I think I mentioned on these podcasts more than once, where he was asked a question about a cousin that was not a from guy, and should they keep him or not, and half the community likes the cousin, half the community doesn't like the cousin. And he said, Mutav lahalim tselem beheichol v'ayabam achlokas b'Yisrael. Better put a, a idol in the Kodesh Kodoshim rather than have a machlokas in the community. So that's where all these Rabbanim and the Pachadites are coming from. But a Kabbalist sees the word, and a Kabbalistic enthusiast, a Makubal, sees things differently, right? Those kind of considerations didn't move him. He, instead, they're saying there's a spiritual, terrible thing going on. You're, you're, you're insulting Hashem. You're causing the wrong vibes to come down from heaven. You think you're doing something good, and you're really causing something negative. And he actually wrote this up in a book, which becomes one of his famous writings. He wrote many Sfarim. It's called Phil and the Marialma. The Tefillin of Maryam of, of God, which is the, the quote from the Zohar, and it, that is the classic case against um, putting on Tefillin Cholamay, against it. Now, I know that Vilna Gon is against also putting Tefillin Cholamay, which is why in Israel, where they follow the ground, nobody puts on Tefillin Cholamay. I know that Vilna Gon was a big chassid, if I can use that term. He was a big fan of Emmanuel Hayrick, our hero today. You, you'll see by the time I'm finished, if I finish this. And uh, I don't know if it's because he was persuaded by his arguments, or maybe the Vilna Gon came from other perspective. You know, he knew a lot also. <laughs> so uh, it's just funny it turned out that way. But the regular non Vilna Gon, Ron Ricky, normal everyday Menegashkinaz that goes back generation after generation, they do put on the film. So this became a cause celebrity. What I, the story I just told you, the fight in Gorizia in like 1707 or whatever it was over the film, 1709. Uh, is is uh, is very well known, or it's known to you now, anyway. Uh, so while the armies were raging and shooting each other all over the place, all over northern Italy, because that's what was happening, and the rest of Italy had the famous campaigns of Prince Eugene of Savoy and all this stuff, uh, a lot of famous battles. Over in the Jewish area, they had a different battle. They had a battle over Tzvonacholamoid. Well, that caused him kind of to leave town. I imagine his employers had hit the road. And so he leaves that place, and now, obviously, this incident must have really pricked his Kabbalistic desire. And, you know, I want to really learn the Kabbalah well. Well, how do you learn Kabbalah? I think everybody knows, more or less, you know, the proper way to do it is to learn from a Rebbe, meaning someone else is already in a Kabbalah, right? That's what you say. Now, you and I, today, suppose somebody want to learn Kabbalah. I mean, who would you learn with? Kabbalah, if you want to do that, from somebody you learn from every, learn from every, going all back way, way to Moshe Rabbeinu or, or whatever, say to that Rizal. I don't know who you'd find. I'd have to ask my friend Noah Shavrik, maybe he knows somebody like that. I don't know anybody like that. I know a lot of people are Kabbalistic scholars and they've read Sfarm and even written Sfarm on this, but did they learn somebody who got it from somebody who got it from somebody who got it from somebody like a Masora? I don't think so. Uh, but Maybe it is possible. And in Italy, in his time, there was somebody like that. And uh, the guy lived not that far away, in uh, Reggio de Paglia, I think. Um, no, Reggio d'Emilia. So here again, you're talking about going 50, 60 miles in another direction, and you find yourself in another country, right? 
another country, and uh, in in Reggio, which I think was part of uh, what was it the the uh, Duchy of Modena, yeah. And again, there's one of these little countries in northern Italy. Who ever heard of these people? And the whole Cahilla was again uh, hundred families, maybe, maybe. But the Rov at that time in Reggio d'Emilia, which is a city nobody's even heard of, was a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud, 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 going back to the Rizal. Uh, Benjamin Akoin, Benjamin Bitali, Rabbi Yom Akoin. Uh, the way it works is like this. Uh, it's it's funny. Uh, you have Dari, you've heard of him. Dari had a Talmud, Chaim Vital, you've heard of him. Chaim Vital had a bunch of students, and one of the most famous was Chia Harofe, who actually also learned from the Ari. Chia Harofe had a Talmud, among others, Binyamin Alevi, who later in his life moved from Tzvas, because that's where all these guys started out in Tzvas, and moved to Italy. And Binyamin Alevi, when he was in Italy, he was an old man, he taught, he passed it on to the famous Moshe Zakudo, the Remez, Moshe Zakudo, already in the 1600s in Venice. So here you have somebody in, in Italy, who, Moshe Zakudo, let's say, who actually was from Murano background, I think it was from Amsterdam or something, and he's learning from a guy who learned 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 from their result. And Moshe Zakudo had Talmud, among others, Binyamin Akon. And this Binyamin Akon, Binyamin Vitali, who came from a rich family in uh, in Piedmont, actually, in Alessandria. All these little communities nobody's ever heard of were Kashiva places. And he eventually became the Rav in Reggio Emilia, which is not too far away from where our hero was uh, living. And he said, I'm going to go there and, and, and I want to learn by him. In other words, he was a very Kashiva couple. And by the way, a very big Talmud Chacham and a big Tzaddik. And I know they say in his time, Rabbi Yemen Akoin, if, if he gave a psak and somebody wrote something different, if they found out he wrote it, they would be mavatal. This really happened. I'm serious. You know, it's sort of like to somebody, when I was young in America, somebody said, I think this did dinner. So where Moshe Feinstein said that. Okay, that's it. If Moshe Feinstein said, that's the end of it. So that's who Rabbi Yemen Akoin was. And so the person I'm speaking about, Immortal Chayriki, says, I want to learn Kabbalah, you know, straight from the, the best source I can get. And so he travels over there, and it didn't work out. The first time he came, he wasn't there. The second time he traveled, he wasn't there. In a minute, they're telling him it's ain't going to work out. Which is just interesting, because it means that, as best as I can tell me, he's going to become a Makobo or a Mono Hayek Ricky without having a Rebbe. You understand? Uh, he's going to be sort of like sort of like self-taught or something like that, which is supposed to be a no-no. But sometimes the biggies do that. Now, I could be wrong. I don't know everything about him. And maybe found somebody a little bit as, as far as I know, he's self-taught. Um, but you can understand uh, by the stories I'm telling you the kind of attentions that ca- tensions that characterize the life of somebody who's really uh, yearning, you know, to find all this out. Well, what does he do? Got to make a living. Uh, he's uh, now seventeen. Uh, now seventeen ten. He's uh, twenty-three years old. Uh, he got to make a living. Uh, and meanwhile, he stopped in a town. He got married uh, <laughs> in Fiorenza. Da, uh, I, da, you know, again, you know, know these places. If I had a, tri- I did it. I led a trip once to Italy, 
but we went to the main places, you know, in Rome and Siena and Venice and uh, Ferrara and uh, Livorno and Padua and Verona, places like that. Uh, and that took, that was a whirlwind tour in which we were up like five in the morning every day and went to sleep, you know, at 12 at night. If I would go to all these little places, which are fascinating, and there are synagogues still left over in these little places, Alessandria de Paglia and all that. Uh, if uh, if I would go to all these places, there'd be architectural jewels, but there are no Jews living in that town. There are no Jews over there, okay? Um, one second. I had to interrupt for a second. I'll try to remember where I was. Um, but I know we were talking about our hero and... Uh, let's put it this way. When he gets to the age of 23, he married a girl from a small town over there, and he goes once again into Chinuch. First in Venice, and then Trieste. Trieste is, again, a town which is at the very end of Italy, which is ruled by Austria. And usually the Austrians were extremely anal towards the Jews, but Trieste was an exception because they wanted the Jewish community there to engage in business and, and, and uh, you know, trade, commerce, which would improve the economy. And so it's a city that had rich Jews, and he uh, becomes a Rebbe there. You already see, he must have been a very good Rebbe in the sense of being a natural teacher because they learn about, the, this week is Parshish Truma, and I'm giving this podcast. And he writes that uh, it's Parshish Truma, and the kids didn't understand the Mishkan, and so he made a, a, a model of the Mishkan. I mean, the whole business, you know, with the inside, with the, with the, the tents and the, the walls and everything like that, you know, physical model. Which goes to show you who's a, a, not your typical um, Malamit from yesteryear, which is just dry repetition. You know, Chazar Rashi, say it out loud, and you, whether you know what you're saying or not. Uh, and later on, he wrote it up into a book uh, because uh, he said, you know, here's the model, but I know the kids don't understand all the halachas, and he wrote all the halachas in there. I haven't seen the Sefer. Obviously, it's around. I don't go around collecting his swarm, but I'm sure they sell it. Um, I think it was called Heish of Eifut or something like that, uh, some title, and uh, it's just very interesting, it shows you that he is a Maisechoshev, it's called, and uh, which I say, the Italians, when they're good, they're good, you know, and that's, uh, that, that's how it went. Uh, now, he's there for seven years, that's a long time, and he could have stayed there longer, because obviously if he's the type that I just described is a sort of a natural Rebbe, a natural Machanach, uh, you know, naturally gifted, never took any uh, uh, education courses, but just naturally in it, he would have been a big success. But all this time, this Kabbalistic stuff is bubbling inside of him. And finally, he says, the heck with it, he's making Aliyah. He takes his wife and daughter, I think it was, and they went to Israel, which is most remarkable at that time. First of all, it's in 1717 when a war was raging, between Venice on the one hand and the Austrians on the one hand and the Turks on the other. See, Mamish went in a war zone. But if you're a couple, you disregard that. You drive to the sea, you go and take a boat, and you say nothing will happen to us. And they land in Israel. To land in Israel wasn't simple because Israel is constantly being swept by Magephas, by a plague. So you can imagine what the public health situation was. And the climate was terrible. And I've told you many times, in those years, uh, there were jungles in Israel, literally jungles with uh, you know crocodiles and stuff running around. Israel wasn't what you imagine it to be. And uh, they go to Tzfas, and, uh, which is the headquarters of Kabbalah. Now remember, it's only 120 years since Dari died, and it's uh, less than, it's about uh, literally 100 years since Chaim Batal died. And so the Kabbalistic tradition is very alive, very raw. Now, um, 
Here he plunges into the study of Kabbalah. And there they have literally kissed me every... I'll tell you something I didn't know. That's one of the reasons that let me talk about this. We had a uh, conference in my university last year at Hopkins where they brought in all these uh, big experts on the history of Kabbalah and that kind of stuff, including this guy, Yoni Garb from the Hebrew University. He's a big cheese. And uh, apparently the Ari himself, I didn't know this. So usually in traditional circles, they'll say the Ari wrote nothing. And everything's written by Chaim Vital. And even that came out in dribs and drabs. There's a whole bunch of story to it. But it turns out, I think that's not true. And that there are things that Ari himself wrote and were in still manuscript form in Svat, uh, in addition to things that Chaim Vital had written. So this is the place in the world, in the universe, in which you have Kisavim. Nothing was published. You have uh, your manuscripts that you copy out in your, in, in your own handwriting from the handwriting of Rabbi Chaim Vital or Ari, and people like that, you know, the Guri Ari. And he loves this stuff. And that's what he does. He copies that, he, he plunges into it. The story is that when he came to Tzfat, uh, he went to the uh, kever of the Arizal, you know, Tom, you've been there probably, and Nishtateh, he threw himself in the ground and cried and begged and prayed to be given, uh, you know, the Zuchus to have uh, the intellectual ability to whatever to understand the Kabbalah. So he comes in a very pious mood and he throws himself into it and he learns of a storm. And he's there for like two years, him and his wife. And then, sure enough, a terrible plague hits, like the coronavirus of that time. And you got to leave the country. And that's what people did or die. Uh, pilgrims who moved to, to Israel died all the time like flies because they weren't, they had no medicine at that time and they weren't used to all these terrible epidemics, and you can just imagine the mosquito situation and the bug situation, which carry the germs as we know now, was like crazy. Israel in the summer was like one giant mosquito nest. It really was. And uh, the health condition were geferlich. I believe his daughter died uh, from that plague, which is uh, was not at all uncommon. Later on, the Ramchal will move to Israel a number of years later, and the same thing will happen to him. He will come with his wife and son, and the three of them will perish very shortly when they're hit by a magevah. It's one of the reasons people moved to Israel. One of the reasons they moved to Tzfat, was Tzfat is higher up, fewer mosquitoes. But they're still there, just less. So this is how life was lived once upon a time by your ancestors. That's something to share with you. Now listen to this. So he's now 31 to 30, 32 years old. 32 years old. And uh, uh, they have to flee Israel. And they get on a ship to go back to Europe, captured by pirates, <laughs> captured by Corsairs. Corsairs are Muslim pirates. They used to be all over the Mediterranean, and nobody could stop them. All the countries and kingdoms used to try to stop them and send in navies and things like this. They were just too good. You couldn't beat them. And so you just had to live with it. That, um, especially in the, especially, especially in the 16 and 1700s, but not only then, it was like the golden age of Muslim piracy on the, on the Mediterranean. And uh, if you didn't have some kind of special uh, protection money you paid uh, so that the bosses of the pirates would give you a letter, you should be left alone, you're going to be sunk, you know, or you'll be captured. And what would happen is the pirates would take the, take the ship and um, usually people are too afraid to fight. And the ship, therefore, is uh, now the property of the pirates. And all the people on board, if they're old or this and the other, just kill them, throw them overseas or kids. If they're young or if they're uh, if they're the type that'll be ransomed, 
then uh, they'll keep them on board, but they'll sell them for slaves. The whole Muslim world was full of these slave markets, in which the pirates are always capturing people. I'm talking European white men. And uh, they're sold literally as slaves. Uh, it happened in uh, Egypt, uh, through, uh, the whole North Africa, the continent of North Africa. Everywhere were white European slaves. And sometimes they work in Avodas Perach, you know, real, like working in the salt mines, and sometimes they get better uh, treatment and uh, all kinds of things like that. And the result is uh, terrible. And nobody could stop it. Uh, the British send the Navy, it didn't work. The Spanish send the Navy, it didn't work. The French send the Navy, it didn't work. Uh, I'll tell you, this went on for hundreds, hundreds of years. When the United States of America was first born in the time of George Washington, you probably don't know this. So, uh, used to be, by the time of the American Revolution, England paid them off money. So if you had a British ship, you wouldn't be attacked by the pirates, because England gave a protection money, a bribe, to the pirate chiefs. The rulers in Morocco and Algeria and places like that, the pirate chiefs, that they should leave a ship with a British flag alone. But all of a sudden it became a country called America. It's a different flag. So now you're open to the pirates. So what do you do? So George Washington was a very practical guy. And he said, and he said, yes, just pay him. You know, it's the price of doing business. We don't have a Navy. It's not die. Just pay him off. And then American ships can go in the Mediterranean. And when they show them this uh, papers or something like that, or they'll put out the word to the pirates to see an American flag. So then the pirates won't attack you. Uh, that's how it goes. And this is what George Washington did. And this is what John Adams did. Uh, when Thomas Jefferson became the president in 1801, he couldn't take it. He couldn't stand it. Even though Jefferson was usually like a pacifist and he believed in a small army, all the rest of it, he said, the heck with this. We're creating something called the United States Navy and we're going after these Mamzerim. And that's how the Navy started. It started under Adams, but really was under Jefferson. It's called the War of the Barbary Pirates. Maybe you heard it best with this. The Barbary Pirates. And Barbary's just no waiting for North Africa. And Thomas Jefferson sent the U.S. Navy, so I'm not paying you many money, the Arabs. You understand? Uh, the famous speech went at that time by Pinckney. Millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. And the result was, it was a war between America and, uh, and the Barbary pirates. And uh, each one shot and sank the other. And when I was a kid, there used to be Stephen Decatur, was a famous name, Decatur, D-E-C-A-T-U-R, from Baltimore. And uh, he said, my country right or wrong. And he led the American Navy in daring attacks on the pirates and things like that. And uh, at one point, they fought against Tripoli, which is where Emmanuel Hayriki was captured and, and, and put in the slave market. Tripoli is in what you call today Libya. Libya, till, till, till today, stinks as a pirate headquarters, right? You know, Gaddafi used to be there. And uh, they created a force just to, uh, to fight the pirates uh, as an effective army. It's called the United States Marine Corps. That's what the Marines are. They were created to fight the Arab pirates. Isn't that interesting? And... Uh, when they fought the pirates, uh, the pirates, and the, they used to call the pirates Corsairs. That was the technical name, like the car, C-O-R-S-A-I-R, Corsairs. And uh, these were the Arab pirates. They roamed the seas. They went to the Atlantic Ocean, this place, that place, and nobody could prevent anything from them. And when they fought you, they would always have a special uh, cut and slash method with the sword and try to cut your neck. You know, like I'm coming to get you with a big sword or a knife and slash your neck. So, and that worked. And it terrified people, and they were afraid to fight them. But the Marines said to heck with this, and they tied leather belts around their neck. So if you take um, two or three leather belts, and so it's a protection. If you slash, the uh, try to get my neck, 
You get the, you get the leather. You know what I mean? You, you, don't, you don't get the neck of me while I can stab you. That's why the Marines are called the leather necks till this day. So I'm just telling you all this. I'm not sure why I'm telling you all this. <laughs> but to show you that piracy was just a main part of life. And our hero, Emmanuel Chayriki, you know, he and his wife got captured by pirates. And they're taken to Tripoli, to the, to the Muslim headquarters. And they're put for the slave market. Now, what do you do? He was doomed. The answer is, he's Italian Jew. First of all, he's a Jew. So a Jew means like this. A local Jewish community will try to do pinyin shuyim. They will try. And every one of these communities, it's funny, like Tripoli, for example, or uh, Algeria, or uh, Sali in Morocco, and the, you know, and, or, 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 all these port cities where they had piracy, they always were Jewish communities because they're there doing regular business. And uh, some of them were very close with Jewish communities. And the Jewish community, the pirates would come and bring in prisoners and slaves. And if possible, the Jewish community always had a committee with money to try to buy these slaves out and give them their freedom. In other words, I'm not arguing with you. You're a pirate. You have the right to do whatever you want. Now that the guy's up for sale in the slave market, I'm going to buy him. And there are many, many tales about, um, you know, and Shilas, Shilas galore, about how you deal with the international piracy slave market. Uh, and it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. And, uh, you know, there's a whole logic to it. Uh, you know, do you pay? The Gemara has rules, you know, in the Talmud, you can't overpay and things like that. And you can't do things to encourage the pirates to go get more Jews. But in those days, it wasn't a question of encouraging them to get more. It wasn't anti-Semitic. They did against everybody. They captured a ship from Europe. They took the Europeans. They captured a ship from somewhere else. They took the people from somewhere else. Uh, you know, if Jews were bored, Jews were bored. You know, it's, uh, it wasn't against the Jews themselves, but they're certainly not going to give the Jews any room, you know, or any special treatment unless the Jewish community goes and uh, does Pidgin Shvillian. So wherever there was a Kehillah, up, there was always a fund for Pidgin Shvillian. But, you know, money isn't, uh, doesn't grow in trees. Not every community was loaded to get up to the gills. And, um, you know, they only had limited funds. And you had to be lucky to be able to do this. And all I can tell you is that uh, it's an entire culture over here. There is, believe it or not, if you happen to be, I don't know who I'm talking to, if you happen to be interested in this subject, years ago I bought a book by a professor, I think. It's published by Barilon. I just went over to my shelf and found it. Uh, by a professor named Elazar Bashan, or maybe it's Bashan, based in Nun, and it's called Shviyah Upedut in Hebrew, which means capture, uh, captivity, and then re redeeming from captivity. And it's published by Barilan, and it's a study, very nice study too, very nice study, of uh, just what I told you, it's from 1980, of the history of Jews and piracy in the sense of Pinyin Shulim that I just described. Pinyin Shulim. And uh, Cecil Roth has uh, stuff on this. And he did his homework. And in the Shalos and Shubas, for example, that's mainly what he's interested in, the Shalos and Shubas, but not only there. He's got endless, endless material. And let me see if he has anything on Ricky over here. Once I pulled up this uh, book, whoever even opens a book like this, you know, Mono uh, High Ricky. Uh, one second. Just for my own interest since um, speaking about him. Uh, yes, he does. Hold on one second. Um, 
Hi, I'm picking up where I left off. I'm doing something that i never done before. I was afraid it would happen. I'm going past my usual time limit. But this story is so interesting, I hold. And it's, I told you before, it's like a movie that I don't mind how long it takes, even though it's going to go way over my normal time, I fear. And I left you off with our hero, Manochai Ricky, and his wife. Actually, he had two sons. The daughter died from the Magaif in Israel, who were captured by these pirates and these corsairs and taken to the slave market in Tripoli. This is in 1720, late 1719, early 1720. And uh, when they come there, as I said before, there is a Jewish community, but in Tripoli and in these other, some other North African Jewish communities, a funny situation developed. And it all has to do with a very remarkable community that once upon existed, which no longer really does, and that's the Jewish community in Italy of Livorno, or Leghorn as it used to be called. And that's a community, uh, a Kehillah, on the, uh, it's north of Rome, let's put it this way, near, near the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and became the port city of the Grand Duke of Tuscany. I, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, because I know I did Irgust, and he lived there. And uh, so you should go listen to that. But the what happened was, that in the 1500s, the Italian, the Catholic Church in Italy really got anal, and they went after the Jews and put everybody in the ghettos and treat them very badly. Uh, you could live and you can manage, and depending where things were different, but it was not fun to be Jewish in Italy at that time. And you didn't have much freedom, and there were a lot of economic restrictions and other things like that. However, there was one famous exception, and that was the community of Livorno. And the reason is capitalism. The ruler of that Medina, that country, was called the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and he needed money. And so what he did was, like Ronald Reagan, I'll make Enterprise Zone. I'm going to take his little fishing village called Livorno, which is a garnish place, and I'm going to say, like Donald Trump, pure capitalism. Anybody moves over here and, you know, just pay, you know, 10%, whatever, for, for, for taxes, and then do your thing, baby. There'll be no labor unions, there'll be no special, uh, you know, regulations, uh, you know, no labor laws. And uh, you can basically do whatever you want. Uh, and the idea is that this will attract business-type people who want to make a high profit, and they will build up factories, and, uh, you know, ships will come in and out and transporting uh, goods. It'll be a big center of business. And the king, or the Grand Duke of Tuscany, will take his 10 or 20% or whatever he took off the top and get a lot of money that way. And he was willing to be so capitalistic that even if you're Jewish... You know, you can live here, and we won't ask any questions whether you're a Christian before, anything like that. And there will be no ghetto, and no special, you don't have to wear a yellow star or any kind of junk. And you can just live the real life of Riley over here, and just engage in business. Uh, this is what a golden dream for the Jews. It's the only place in Italy like it. Everywhere else the Jews were under terrible laws. And uh, what happened was, Sephardim, Spanish-Portuguese Jews, flocked there. And they became the whole Kehillah, and they wouldn't let any Ashkenazim in. I mean, you can come as a Mashalik for a day or two and get, get out of here, man. Hit the road. And it was a pure Spanish-Portuguese uh, Sephardi community. And they made zillions because they cornered the market on this and that and the other. And I remember they sold uh, hair, brushes, whatever was this fashion. And they really bought it a ton of money, and they made a lot of money in the, along the way. And this is in the 1600s and later. At that time, people were still from, or at least observant. And this community had three, 4,000 people, 
most of whom were well-off indeed. And uh, they created a very remarkable community, and they were generous. Listen, like all richy rich communities, uh, Livorno uh, basically said, we don't want rabbis telling us what to do, and the businessman ran the, sh- the, businessman ran the show, and, you know, they, they ran the based in and all that kind of stuff to make sure that the Hoshim Mishim would, would not interfere with their business practices. Adam Professor wrote a whole book on this. And uh, it was an interesting community. And they had, you know, and like all Richie Rich communities, they had over-the-top Kiddush Rishons, which started at, at 9 o'clock and ended at 12. And, you know, with was uh, endless booze and this kind of stuff. They, they had all the problems of rich communities. On the other hand, just like you have in America, the same person, that might be some party animal on Shabbos morning instead of being in Shul, will be very generous for Tzedakah and for Pidyon Shavuyim and even for Akzakah Torah. It's interesting. And so the Jewish community of Livorno, which was the richest, when the other communities were poor, uh, they uh, were very active in things like Pidyon Shavuyim and other mitzvahs. And Yishev Eretz Yisrael, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And if you were Sephardi, but only if you're Sephardic, and you had a project, and you went to Livorno, you could, you know, you could raise money. And if you had a safer, if you if you have a safer you want to publish, and you go to Livorno, chances are you can kiss up to somebody, and they will pay for the publication of this farm. In fact, I would say ninety five percent of the Sephardic books, Sephardic Sephardic, were always published by people who traveled to Livorno, Sephardic rabbis, and they got some richy rich guy to to bankroll it. They didn't mind doing it at all. And the Sidurim, the Machzorim, the Gemaras, the Mefarshim, and all the rest of it are almost always published in Livorno. It's just very interesting. And these Jews got a reputation all over the Mediterranean as being rich and powerful and successful and classy, and they dress European. I'll say it again. They were Shomer Shabbos, you know, the, some more so, some less so. But they're all, as we would say, the Orthodox Jews. And they had a very privileged position in the Mediterranean. Now listen closely. In some of these Arab countries, like Libya, there were the local Jews, the Jews from Libya, from Tunisia, from Algeria, and they were treated by the Muslims like grunts, you know, uh, lower class. Jews had a Jewish uh, ghetto and all that kind of stuff. But if you were an Italian from Livorno, then the the Arab ruler of Tripoli or of Tunisia or one of these other places would say, hmm, I want some of these guys to move into my community and bring some of that business my way and help my economy. And so there's Jew A and Jew type B. Jew type A is just a local Jew who's treated like a drek. And the Jew type B is a journey, as they call him, Livorno Jew. And uh, he can live in his own quarters, doesn't have to live in the Jewish quarter, and he can have his own synagogue, and, he can, and they dress like Europeans, you know, look like George Washington type. And, uh, you know, with the hair and everything. And uh, they don't have all the restrictions that the Muslims put on the other Jews. Uh, now they pay a tax for it, but nevertheless, they live a much better and higher standard of living and a much freer one. And they're treated like with privilege. You get it? So those are the guys you want to hook up with. So here is our hero, I mean, Manuel Hayriki, who is an Italian Jew. He's like them. And he's a rov. And he was a Makobo. He was just in Israel's spot. And he was captured by a Corsair ship. And really, it wasn't right because I believe it probably was a Muslim ship or something like that. No, he was the type of ship that they didn't have the right to... I don't remember the exact uh, law, but they broke the law by capturing that ship. And, and he writes about it in, in the introduction in one of his farm. And, uh, and he says, it was, I'm novel, but Barbaria, you know, 
I got by, by the not the barbarians, but but the barbarians from Barbary Coast. And here he is in the marketplace in the slave market, beat up. The corsairs took everything he has. He wrote, and who knows? I mean, to be perfectly honest, they used to strip these people naked and stand them in the in the slave market. But that's what they did, whether you liked it or not. The men, women, and children. And what what a busyness, you know. And uh, what a busyness. Here he went to learn Kabbalah, and now he's get, this has happened to him. And Amal Hamashiach shows up. One of the Livorno Jews, who's living in Tripoli, hears about this, comes to the marketplace, and he's rich and all that. Calfone, his name was Calfone. Safari, you know, Spanish, Portuguese. And uh, he said, like this, wait a minute. This guy was taken from this and this ship and so on and so forth. Uh, you never right to arrest him. And the pirates say, you shut up, and, you know, if you know what's good for you. And uh, he complains to the Pasha, whoever the government is. And make a long story short, he said like this, listen, I don't know what the final disposition of this guy is. Uh, you captured a bunch of Catholic priests, he also says on the ship, the Kamarim. And those guys were really tortured by the Corsairs. Uh, this Jewish guy, because he's a Livorno Jew, so he gets the, the, the local ruler to say like this, okay, till we figure out what to do with this rabbi and his family, you can take him to your house, like on your security, you know what I mean, like in your bond. And he pays a bond, which means he pays the pirates a certain amount of money as a pecotin. And when if, when this is all settled, he'll get his pecotin back. That's the idea. Uh, and so this is a, a Yeshua, the rabbi and his wife and two kids, standing naked in the slave market. And now all of a sudden, a guy came along and took him to his house. And he lives like in Boca, you know what I mean? He lives in a big house. And uh, obviously got him clothes and this and that and the other, treat him with their hairs took 40 days to sort this business out. So what does that mean, 40 days? As best as I can figure out, they probably sent to Livorno. There they had the Pidian Shulian Committee. He said, I have a Hush rabbi here and this and that and the other, Italian. And they sent the money. And they paid the pirates, and then he got his bond back. And Shalom Yisrael, and he was able, uh, with the money, to go and sail to Livorno. And so he really had a, a, a miracle. So you might say like this, if you're studying Kabbalah, why were you captured by pirates? Or else you can say like this, because you study Kabbalah, when you were captured by Paris, you had a zechus to get out of it in a way that other people don't get uh, get out of when they're captured by pirates. So it's just interesting, and he and therefore he, he goes to uh, Livorno in 1720, and uh, my goodness, you know, uh, let, let, let's put it this way, he finds himself in the richest Jewish community in the world. Richest Jewish community in the world. And you know, he and, and by the way, he had a safer with him or something like this. The pirates took everything else away from him except a, a manuscript, a safer he was writing. If I remember correctly, it was a, a Pirish on Mishnayis. And he had called the, the Pirish Dikduki Anius, which sounds like, you know, poverty stuff. And that's and he felt that this was uh, a dis or a safer shouldn't have a bad name like that. And that's why he was punished with this uh, captivity. And so he renamed the safer Hon Ashir, you know, the wealthy uh, wealth of a rich man. And he published it. That's where he has this description of the piracy episode, you know. And anyway, so he goes over here in Livorno. He spends there three years, and uh, basically they treat him like a, you know, like a silk. You know, he had a, he had a grand time over there, and here becomes uh, perhaps the most interesting uh, part of his uh, career in one respect. Although all of this is like a movie, and that is, Livorno had I say a couple thousand Jews. So by the standards of that era, that was a big, very big community. Let's say roughly a thousand families. Something something along those lines. 
which was a big community once upon a time. And remember, it's exclusive. You're not allowed to move in there unless you're uh, from a Spanish-Portuguese background and not every Sephardi, and you got to be rich. You know, you got to be rich. So it's like Florida, some of these places, you know. Now, um, this is very interesting. But they will make exceptions for a distinguished Talmud Chacham. That's a different story, especially a guy who's Italian. And so he can sit there, and they paid his expenses and all that kind of stuff. And while he's there, he meets the elite of the community. Now, there's in Livorno, you have uh, a very interesting situation. You've had other times in Jewish history as well. And that is, you have a, a lot of families where there'd be like several siblings. Let's say, for example, four brothers. I'm just making this up. Four brothers. So three of the brothers would run the business. And the fourth one would devote for learning. You get it? You, you had a fair number of those type situations. Later on, the Benish Chai was like that in Baghdad. You know, the brothers run the business, um, and but they share it. You know, in other words, they'll support the other brother who's sitting learning. If he's the real thing, you know, they're not going to, they're, they're businessmen, they're not going to waste their time on junk. But if the guy's the real thing, they don't mind. And so here he meets um, the person who's going to be his best friend and his personal protagonist. Because from the ranks of these brothers, as I just described, who are able to sit and learn, you have a Gansa community, you have an elite, who are learning, and some of these people are into Nigla, and some of these people are into Nister. And I would say at this time, Sephardi Jews in general, and Livorno Jews as well, are into Nister, but they don't know anything about it. People, you know, th These are the people who publish the books of the Rizal, and those type of people as well the, the the Nicola stuff, and they hear about it, and, you know, Shabtai Tzvi had been a big controversy in, in, in Livorno, and they're just interested in that whole Kabbalistic world of ideas, but who can make heads or tails out of the result? It doesn't make any sense. And so they approach him, and they said, you know, you look like you know what you're talking about, and you actually read the stuff from the Ari himself, and, uh, you know, you seem like you're uh, fully engaged. Can you, um, what shall I say, I'll pay you, the guy says, to write me an art scroll Kabbalah book, so to speak. Now, something that's, uh, you know, understandable and written clearly for the average Joe to understand the basic stuff of Kabbalah. And that's where he wrote his famous book, Mishnah Chassidim. Mishnah Chassidim. In which he understands, he writes like a Mishnayis, sort of, in different Mesechtas, in which he explains in a very clear way um, all the basic stuff of Kabbalah, as he understands it, I repeat, as he understands it, and he was therefore engaged during these three years in doing this and having, I say what we would say today, uh, Kabbalah seminars and uh, things like that, and he meets, as I say before, uh, someone very similar to himself, but very different at the same time, and that is um, uh, Irgas, uh, uh, Yosef Irgas, who is a local boy uh, from a rich family, and whose brothers are running the business, and he is devoting himself for learning. And he's the Shomer Munim that I did a podcast on some time ago. And, uh, you know, they click. Now, here's the difference. Yosef Regas has spent all of his life in one town, where Emmanuel Hariki has been moving from place to place. Yosef Regas came from a rich family. Emmanuel Hariki came from a poor family where the father died. Yosef Regas went to a regular yeshiva in Livorno, you know, a real yeshiva, and he learned, like you say today, you know, in Lakewood and in Der Israel and Panovich, something like that, and a, and a regular derech. And the other guy didn't. The other guy learned to, like in a small little chabur uh, in Rovigo, you know, maybe with one chabrus or two. We still don't know who. Here's another one. Yosef Rigas 
got interested in Kabbalah, he was rich enough, he traveled to this Makobal that the other guy wanted to go to, Rabbi Yom Cohen, who was a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of Dari, and who was the big cheese in Kabbalah, the big cheese in Kabbalah. Believe me, when Rabbi Yom Cohen dies, the, the Ramchal writes a whole long poem about it. You know what I'm saying? You can see it online, I think. Uh, so he was a big, big name. And he learned from the stories, he learned them seven weeks, two months, and they went through the whole, uh, the Arizal stuff. So he has learned literally from a Rebbe. If you follow what I'm saying, you learn from somebody, you learn from somebody, you learn from somebody. Whereas Imano Hayriki didn't. Uh, what Imano Hayriki did was he went to Tzvas and he read the stuff, literally the, the handwriting of the Rian Chaimatal. But it's a different type of engagement. And the two are very good friends. They disagree on Kabbalistic matters. That's all. And when uh, Irgas will years later write his book Shemra Munim, he'll have Askama from Imal Chayriki, even though he disagrees with him on the Timtum and other things, and vice versa. Uh, when Imal Chayriki will write his book, Mishra Chazim, the Irgas will give him Askama. And so these books that I'm talking about, you know, really put his name on the map, as, as it were. And um, as you see, therefore, he uses uh, the opportunity he has in Livorno very productively. These rich guys have big libraries. Why do they have big libraries? Every Machaber is, you know, sending them stuff to get money, and many of the books are actually published in Livorno, as I told you before, especially the Spirish stuff. And so, if you publish the book, all the rich guys you give a, you give a copy to, you know, first of all, you're kissing up to them, second of all, you know, they'll use it. But they would be the first ones to tell you, as they told Ricky in the conversation records the beginning of the Mishnah's Classinum. I have this book, I have no idea how to read it. I don't know what's going on. That's why they solicited from him. He should try to write a dumbed-down version of this, which is what his Mishnah's Chassidim is. Um, but what are you going to do? You can't sit there forever, or at least, let's put it this way. He wasn't built in such a way they sit there, somebody else supporting him, while he just uh, hangs around. Now, it's okay with me, but that's not what he wished to do. And so as a result, anyway, as a result, he um, takes a job to the rabbi in Florence, uh, which is the capital of the Tuscany of that Medina, but, uh, you know, there, let's put it this way, uh, he <laughs> he doesn't uh, get along so well with the community. I think, I imagine, they, were, they also gave him trouble with the tefillin. That's what I think happened with Cholomite. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but he had fights with them, and so he got out of there. Uh, frankly, he doesn't seem to have had the temperament to be a rov, which you have to be a politician and get along over here. Meanwhile, though, he published the, uh, the, the Safer, um, he couldn't stay in Florence, I remember, because the uh, air, you know what I mean, The uh, what's what I say, it's too hot the summer. Everybody tells me, I was there with a group in the winter, everybody says Florence is impossible in the summer. And the Jews, even in ancient times, used to go to the mountains, even in the centuries earlier. And this guy can't go to the mountains, he's not rich. And so he had to leave uh, Florence. And uh, now he's got to go and raise money, uh, basically, to maybe make a yeshiva somewhere, and maybe pay for some of his farm. And he goes on a tour of the Western Europe. Imagine that. He goes on a tour of Western Europe to try to raise money, plain and simple. And he goes to, uh, I remember, London and Amsterdam and all these kind of places. And he raises the money. And on his way back, he's on a ship. And just like the movies, the ship gets uh, shipwrecked by a storm right off Gibraltar. And well, Gibraltar, the bottom of Spain. And we're talking in the 1720s. So Gibraltar had just been captured by Britain, but there were no Jews there yet. The Jews came, 
1727. I remember that because I was in Gibraltar a couple of years ago and they said, Rabbi Kess, please come back in the year 2027 when we will celebrate 300 years of the Jews being continuously in Gibraltar. And the guy pointed to the shul that I was in. He said, this synagogue has been an active synagogue ever since 1727 under protection of the British crown, under protection of England. So um, he's on the ship. It's as, as a very, very famous uh, story. Uh, I hope it's true, but it might be. And uh, uh, the, the story goes like this. The ship was in a storm, and it started sinking, and they knew there was a hole somewhere, and they didn't know where the hole was, and if they, they couldn't plug it up. And it's the middle of a storm, you know, you can't tell, and it's dark and so forth. And it was Rosh Hashanah. You heard this? It was Rosh Hashanah. And who's on the ship? A couple of Jews, including Mr. McCobble himself, Manuel Chayriki, and another guy who's a Baltakea. Uh, can you believe it? They're on a ship. Now, why would he go with Rosh Hashanah time on the, on the ship? I don't know. And uh, since it was Rosh Hashanah, he said like this. The story goes like this. Oh, we're going to drown. Well, at least let's hop around. Before we drown, let's do 100 tequila, 100, you blow chauffeur. Kind of mitzvah chauffeur. And they must have thought he's mentally nuts. And so here the ship is going. I'll tell you, it's a great movie. Somebody, where's the Steven Spielberg for this? The ship is turning upside down, crashing and smashing. The, 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 the sails are breaking apart. And over here is this Jewish guy saying, Tkia, Trua, you know. And the story goes, he did 100 kolas. And since he's a Mokubal, I'm sure every time he said Tkia, he thought this. And every time he said Shwarm Trua, he thought that. And the story is, when he finished the 100 kolas, all of a sudden, the sailors could see where the hole was and they could plug it up. They discovered where the hole was. And since they were plugged it up, they were able to make it barely to shore without everybody drowning. But then he's cast ashore with the rest of them in Spain. No Jews allowed to be in Spain. No Jews, you know, they had to be kicked out in 1492. Uh, so he's got Hakdatsar, a from Jew to, to boot. But he said that, you know, in the course of the show for all the rest of it, the Spanish uh, governor over there said, I realize that, you know, you didn't come here on purpose. And so just get on the next ship and get out of here. He didn't, he didn't bother him. You know what I'm saying? He didn't bother him. So he was very lucky. Well, <laughs> what a story. He goes back to Livorno, and if I was him, I would just stay here, because it's a rich city. They liked him, and he could devote himself all to Alvodo, and uh, nobody would bother him, but he's not built that way. His idea was like this, uh, back to Israel. I was only happy when I was in spot, and I want to go and smell the air there, and get in the Kabbalah uh, heavy duty over there, and learn Nigla and Nister in Eretz Yisrael. The only thing is, you know, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? And so... He heads back to Israel, uh, and he stops in uh, the but the Syrian, the rich Syrian Jews, Aleppo. You've heard of Aleppo. That's a deal, New Jersey, and that's like another Livorno. Livorno are, are Spanish Jews, Portuguese background in Italy, and they're loaded. And the Syrian Jews, they're loaded in their way. They're other type of, of Sparty Jews, and he's a Sparty. And basically, he's like this: I'm coming to Israel. I'm going to have a project to build a yeshiva here, and to build Kabbalah, and for uh, Nigla and Nister, and all this sort of thing. And uh, what, what what can I say? You know, they they, they uh, give him the money, and uh, he heads to Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so by this time, you know he's not so young anymore. I mean, it's around eighteen. I mean, seventeen thirty, something like that. And uh, my goodness, uh, he's had a, a quite a life. Uh, but meanwhile, he's he was publishing his farm over here, and I remember he had these dreams. And, uh, you know, I don't know, they're weird dreams. Uh, no, Shabbat reminded me of that yesterday. 
you know, we saw, uh, I remember we saw Eliyahu Nabi's son, Yonah, the prophet Jonah, and uh, in a cave or something like that. He had the very, very unusual uh, kind of dreams. And he he would see Sfarim, I'm, I'm sorry, he would see Psukim in the dreams and then wake up and tell you this is what the meaning of the dreams. It ain't normal what we're dealing over here. But then again, a big Makobo, you could hear something. You you, you wouldn't be uh, surprised to hear something like that, right? Now, um, what can I tell you? He finally reaches, um, with the money, reaches Yushalayim. And uh, there, uh, there's a movement. Uh, here we have, again, uh, just such a very, very interesting uh, uh, phenomenon regarding Israel in the seventeen uh, early 1700s. He had a dream to build a yeshiva, you know, of his of his type, Yushalayim. He won. Let me put when he was in Aleppo, this rich Syrian Jewish lady really fell for him in the sense of being a fan of his, a chassid of his. She herself was an irgas. I remember she may have been the sister or cousin of the one in, in Livorno, the Shomer Munim, and um, she told her husband to give him the money. And he comes to Yushalayim, and. At this particular time, Yerushalayim has a lot of what you call churbas, you know, uh, busted places. The area that you and I today call the Jewish Quarter, the Rova, which looked like a mess and a half. And uh, 40 years earlier, 30 years earlier, a bunch of Ashkenazim had come there to try to make a whole kehillah, but then they ran out of money, and then the Arabs rioted and knocked down all the buildings, and the place was going to pot. And he said like this, I'm going to find a place over here, and I'm going to take the stones that are lying around, and I'll get a contractor, and we'll build a building from the stones that are lying busted around. And that'll be my house, and uh, like a, a shul with, with the yeshiva attached to it, meaning he has plans. This is part and parcel of, for some reason, a movement was in general in the 1700s of uh, European or Ashkenazi Sephardi rabbis who wanted to make aliyah, and each one had the same idea. They weren't thinking like Theodore Herzl starting a country, but at least I'll move to Yerushalayim and build like a small kill, and maybe the kill will grow. And uh, it'll be founded on a shul and a yeshiva kind of situation. And maybe it will attract Talmud Chacham and make a, become a big yeshiva. And maybe that will attract the Jews from around the world. Uh, a lot of people thought this at the same time. I always say, if tragedy and misfortune didn't carry everybody away in the 1740s, showed up in Israel, or would have showed up in Israel, you had the Ramon Ricky, later Moshe Chaim Lutzato and his family, also the Or HaChaim, Chaim Benatar. Just think about that. If these three guys were walking around at the same time in a small, in Yerushalayim, three of the big Mekobos, the Ramchal and the, the Mishnah Chassinim and the, and the Or HaChaim, it's like radioactive. And I can tell you right now, had this happened that they stayed there, the Baal Shem would have run there, if you know who the Baal Shem was. I'm very serious about that. So imagine you have these four, and Avram Gershon Kutter, I mean, it would have been radioactive with uh, Kabbalah and Kedusha, you know? And from a Kabbalistic perspective, this would have started the modern the state of Israel on a religious basis. How it would have developed, who knows? But, um, you know, how it would have panned out. But uh, it so happened divine providence caused all these people to die. So it wasn't in the cars, as we would say today. So he builds this uh, uh, place in Yerushalayim, but he ran out of money. So then, meanwhile, the Orachim came to Yerushalayim to settle there. Chaim Benatar from Morocco. Chaim uh, Benatar actually had been in Livorno. So he's a Sephardi Jew from Morocco who moves from, Sephardi, uh, from Morocco to uh, Livorno, and then from Livorno 
where he raised the money, moves to Palestine, to Israel, and ends up in Yerushalayim, or Chaim Kadosh, and he also wants to make yeshiva, and they're talking about, you know, combining, or keeping separate, and all this stuff, and then comes, then comes politics, then comes politics, which does him in, um, and it's just fascinating to me, because, um, at that time, there was a movement of rich Jews in Livorno to start a yeshiva, that'll be a high-level yeshiva in Yerushalayim. So you might think it's a perfect shidduch. Uh, and uh, they brought him aboard. And the local Sephardi Jews in Yerushalayim said, I guess, listen, you're a big Tamakacham, a big Makobo, uh seemed to be a nice guy. We're the local committee to set up the yeshiva over here. We get the money coming in from these rich guys from Italy. Uh, you, you you already started having a building. Um, you go and use the building. No, you become the Rosh Hashiva. They told us to set the whole thing up, and so we assume that means that we set up the administration and the physical building and the uh, organization and bring in the students, and we appoint the teaching staff, including the Rosh Hashiva. Now, that's what they did. And so he said, great. And he thought this is God's answer literally to his prayers. He'll spend the rest of his life being Marvitz Torah and Kabbalah and Yerushalayim, Yerach Kodesh, a block away from the Kotel, didn't get better than that. I'd be as a goel. But, here's the problem. The guys in Yerushalayim misunderstood what the Richie Riches back in Livorno in Italy wanted. What they wanted was that the Jerusalem representatives should be in charge of the administration, but the Richie Riches should appoint the Rosh Hashiva. Obviously, there's always a nepotism. Somebody's a brother-in-law, uncle, that's not the other, you know what I mean? It's not a merit appointment. The yeshivas don't have merit appointments. They have appointments from the donors and from the big guys. And so uh, here the donors wanted somebody. And so when the news came that, guess what? We thought you'd rush even. We appointed you. We had a big ceremony, all the rest of it. Turns out it was a mistake. And you're like fired because that's not what the donors back in Italy want to do. Obviously, he was shattered. And they felt so bad about it. They said, listen, we're going to make another yeshiva. It'll be a separate place. It'll be for you. Those of us who were here in town, we'll put together some money, and in your house, and your little chutzner, you'll make a yeshiva. So it'll be two yeshivas, you know, don't get depressed. And he was okay with the idea, because after all, what else could he do? But the problem was that the locals didn't have that much money, so in order to do this right, he's got to go back to Italy and start another campaign, even though the rich guys you know, are, are giving money for yeshiva A, he says, I'm, I'm starting a new yeshiva. It was called Yeshiva at Chavri Makshavim. And uh, this will be yeshiva for me. And you know how it goes. There's room for more than one yeshiva. Every yeshiva is different. And mine will have my particular style. And so, once again, how many times does this happen? He leaves Jerusalem, gets in a boat. Now, at this time, it's already 1740s. So the guy's like in his mid-50s. He's not old, but, you know, he's had a hard life. And uh, he travels back to Italy, and he goes up north, and he raises the money. He raises the money, he goes from town to town. He already has a big reputation based on his farm that he published, and people saw who he was. And he was um, a saint. You know, he did a lot, he fasted a lot, and uh, you know he's very zayir in lashon hara, and he lived a very poor, you know, I mean, a very uh, modest lifestyle. He did all these kabbalistic things that we associate with an ascetism. You understand? Uh, you know, and uh, like I say, he did. It. They say he fasted all, fasted all weekend, things like that. And so, anyway, say when he came to Italy, he had like a must have a hundred pun of a reputation. And so he travels through northern Italy and he raises the money. In fact, he raised a lot of money in Modena. And uh, he was happy. 
now he's returning back. But uh, he travels on the road. He did, he did something very dumb. It was bad luck. Uh, most people don't know this. All the history books in Sfarim get it all wrong. But now you want to hear it the right way. At that time, in 1743, a major war was raging in Italy. I tell you, all during the, the first half of the 1700s, until 1748, there were a whole series of wars, of European wars, in which parts of them were fought in northern Italy, exactly where we're talking about. And in 1743, was going what they called the War of the Austrian Succession which is too complicated to explain to you guys, but let it suffice it to say that the Spanish army was fighting the Austrian army in northern Italy, okay? With the Piedmont army on the Austrian side. So it's army A and B versus army C. And right where we're talking about, near Mudden and all the rest of it, like a, a few, a two or three weeks before, was a major battle between the Austrian army and the Spanish army. It's called the Battle of Campo Santo. Not that you have to know that. <laughs> uh between the famous Austrian general, Field Marshal von Traun, who later defeated Frederick the Great, and the Spanish guy, I forget his name, that doofus. So, uh, and it was an inconclusive battle, you know, it was one of those things. Very bloody battle. So the whole place is a war zone, and soldiers from both sides are running around all over the place. And here comes this Jew, an old Jew too, he's in his 50s, and you know, it's not young in those days, and he's got a lot of cash on him. <coughs> I don't know why he did this, but he did do it. And say so he was captured as best as I could. So they, they run across him. It's too good of an opportunity. They're a bunch of hilarious, a bunch of mums there. I've read different accounts as best as I can tell. And well, I don't think we'll ever know exactly. But as best as I can tell, he was captured by, I think he said Hungarians or something like that, which means they're part of the Aus Austrian army. Um, if I'm right, this is the war of Maria Theresa versus Frederick the Great. And... Um, a major part of the Austrian army were these uh, Hungarian pandors, or like Vildechayas, who were given permission to raid and shoot and kill and burn and, and rape and whatever, as part of the irregular forces. I think, that's uh, so what I read, that's, that, that's what happened over there. And anyway, the long and the short of it is that uh, they seized him. Um, they obviously saw he's a from Jew. They're a bunch of hilarious. They had fun torturing him, it seems. I believe they tried to meet, make him eat to trade food or something like that. He probably spit it out. He got them all angry at Piot. And so what they did was, you know, they made fun of his tefillin and he went crazy over that. And so they strangled him to death with his tefillin. They strangled him to death with his tefillin. And then they threw his body uh, down in a little hole. They took all of his money and everything. All the money he raised for that yeshiva and any swarm and things like you had on him. Who knows whatever they did to the tefillin. And they dumped in a hole and threw some dirt in the hole and left. And that was the sudden, unexpected end of this famous person. Usually, right in the books, they was killed by robbers, shodidim, uh, things like that. It's not true. It was uh, soldiers from the competing armies that had just had a big battle in the, in the neighborhood. Just take it from me. And uh, he's the wrong place in the wrong time, as I said before. Going from uh, Modena to, what was it, where was he heading to? Some other little town, uh, I remember, it was like 25 miles away. Uh, to, to, to the other town nearby. And um, uh, they heard about it, and it was just terrible, you know. It was just terrible. Now, uh, what do we do with this strange story I just told you? He was strangled to death with his phone straps. You know, and I've never seen anybody comment on this. Because he's the guy that raised hell about the phone on Cholomoy. There's got to be some connection. Uh, 
you can play it this way, you can play it that way. You know, if you're uh, one of his opponents, like the Ashkenaz, they'll say, see, you messed with that film, the film killed you. Or you can do it the other way. You could say, see, it seems to be the most nefesh for a film called Moed, so you have the Zechus, this is how you say it, he had Zechus to die a martyr al-Kiddush Hashem, because that's what happened. He died from being a Jew. He died al-Kiddush Hashem with the Tefillin. You know, so he can play it as a positive, he can play it as a negative. But obviously, all of his projects fell apart with his death. Goes without saying, yeah, children, but you know, all of his projects fell apart with his death. Um, and this just made him a martyr, obviously, goes without saying, and uh, and le- left like a, a strange end to this story. I tell you again, the Tefillin, I don't know what to do with it. It's a, but I, let me put it this way. This ain't a coincidence, right? The guy who made the whole stink about the Tefillin, who wrote a book called Tefillin and Cholomoid, is murdered by being strangled with the Tefillin. See, you figure out what it means. No, I'm serious. You know, you, uh, if you're listening to this, you probably have some intelligence. Go, you know, you go figure out what you can make out of it. Uh, it's quite a story. Did anything ever happen to the soldiers? Obviously not. It's just, to them it was nothing. The Jewish community nearby... I have to remember now. Let me think for a second. Yeah, the news must have been finally reached uh, the town that he had left, Modena, where they gave him the money, actually. And they're, like, shocked. And immediately, how can you leave a guy like this lying in the hole in the road? And they went, um, yeah, I think it was, like, five, ten miles away from their town. And they went there, and they took the body out, of course, and they gave a Jewish burial to the nearest Jewish cemetery. Where's the nearest Jewish cemetery? From a stupid little town. But had, well, again, one of these little Italian communities, Cento. There's down Cento. You know who comes from Cento? Disraeli, the, the famous prime minister of England. His grandfather comes from Cento. Uh, you know, that's weird, by the way. Disraeli comes from the town. Which means that Ad Hayom if you go to this little community, which probably I don't even think they have a show left over. Maybe they still have the dead show. There are no Jews over there. It's a small town. Uh, they have, it's pretty, all these little towns in Italy are pretty because somebody or other built a castle or a church or this, that, and the other at the, at the times. They don't look like American cities, they're pretty. But it's garnished. And there's a small Jewish cemetery. And in, in this small Jewish cemetery, in this stupid, idiotic town, is one of the Gedoli Olam, one of the great Mukabal of all times. You know what I think? That's, that's the nutty thing to me. I don't know why it's th- it is that way. Why don't the Jews in Israel, who would have so many Kabbalah enthusiasts, why don't they organize a campaign to take the body out and bury it in Israel? Don't you think that would make more sense? You know, take the Mishnah's Hasidim, Ramal Hayriki, one of the biggest uh, Gedolim in Kabbalah. Uh, he wrote all this for him, and bury him in Harzasim or something like that. that. That's what you'd think, okay? Instead, you know, he's in some little place. I can't imagine anybody goes there unless you're like one of these Hasidim that makes it his business to go to unknown graves. There are such people. So if you ever go in Italy... I'm serious about this now. And you ever have one of these situations where you have a car, you can do whatever you want, and you're in northern Italy, near Modena, which is, you know, in the northern Tuscany, southern Lombardy. It's a regular place. Tourists go there. You make and and tourist tour groups do go to Cento. I mean it's a it's a small little stupid town, but you know, it's got architectural stuff there. I maybe there's a show you know, it could be there's a synagogue left over. If I Googled it, I found out maybe there's a synagogue left over, no Jews. If you go to the local kever Basic Forest, which is some Jewish families over there, you will find one of the great figures of Jewish history over there. It's it's like strange to me. It's like I mentioned a couple weeks ago with Zinsheim. He's buried in the Geisha Cemetery in Paris. This guy's not buried in the Geisha Cemetery, but he's in a in a little garnished place. 
it's a, it's, it, to me, it's a very strange. Uh, it's the great Mikabalim. I'll just end by saying that uh, I, I don't understand enough about this, but what's classic is that the two friends that I said before are famous for clashing on a basic principle of Kabbalah, which is the Timtum. Uh, you know, the the Termamunim near Irgas says that uh, God doesn't really withdraw into himself and make a room for the world to exist. Not that anybody knows what we're talking about. And that's his point. He says it's all just a muscle. It's Simpson Shalok Kipshuto. And the Mishnah's Chasinim, the Monohai Riki, he said, no, no, it's the real thing, that there is a real symptom tapping over here. And anybody who disagrees hasn't seen the Kisri Arizal written by the read the way I did. And uh, if you try to make sense out of it, you're introducing Gaisha philosophy into Jewish mystical concepts, and you're mixing, you know, apples and, uh, you know, and, and uh, not, not apples and oranges, because those are two uh, fruits. You're making apples and uh, hammers, you know. Two things enough to do with those are philosophy and logic is one way of thinking. Kabbalah is something totally different. It's well known that the Vilna Gon was a fan of Immortal High Ricky, and he held it Simpson this way many, many years ago. When I was young, I read uh, maybe it was the Nevesh Shachayim, probably is where it was. Uh, and I saw, you know, this whole business where the Vilna Gon holds it Simpson was this way, and the Balatanya says it's that way. And uh, that time, the way I read it, and if I remember correctly, from the Nevesh Shachayim, I'm going back by memory. Uh, he said that the reason for the growing others saying that God really mitzamts himself so the 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 elokus is not found everywhere. It's, otherwise, you'd have to say the shechin or whatever is located in dirty places. Are you telling me that God is in a sewer in a toilet bowl? You know what I'm saying? If everything is God, if everything is God, that what you tell me is in a disgusting thing like that, that's a blasphemous. And the other side is no, God is there, but not in the ways that you think. And it was very strange to me. Uh, but I saw that's the Vilna Gaon versus, uh, I think, the Hasidim. Uh, later on, like 10, 15 years later, I read a book which was very good. Uh, the old Moskalic biography of the Balatanya, uh, which was written around uh, before the First World War by this guy, Tadlbam, Harav Miladi Mifleges Chabad, which is a golden oldie from the Achanam era. And um, I don't know what the Lubavitch, probably Lubavitch don't like it. I don't, I don't know. But it, it seemed like a very straightforward biography uh, to me. And the second half was the Shittas Chabad. And all I know is the guy was a very clear writer. And there I saw what I saw the Vilna Gaon is, a, is in a Malhai Riki. You know, it was a Mishnah Chassidim, and he had page after page after that. So it was just very interesting how these things go. So, um, but that's not for you. Uh, if, if you want to see what I just said, then you're the type that you'll be able to uh, go in and, and explore this on your own. So, Everything I just said today, I think, is like like I said before, could be a movie. And uh, such a remarkable story, and such a weird ending, and such a strange uh, coincidence, you know, that I say ends in a tragedy. And it's very sad when you think about it. And um, this all happened on Rosh Chodesh Adar. Get it? It all happened on Rosh Chodesh Adar, February uh, 25th, uh, 1743, which, is, uh, which was yesterday. So that's uh, quite a business. Now, I know I've talked way... It's, this is, what I just gave you today was like two p- podcasts rolled into one, but Mishinich Nesadar Marbim. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com 
www.rabbidavidkatz.com.